0: Weeks ahead, amen. Um, I hope you've been enjoying the series so far. Uh, If you weren't here for the last couple of weeks, let me say that we've been looking at Luke 15. We're going to move on to 16 and 17, starting today. Uh, So, last couple of weeks, Luke chapter 15, uh, the three parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, the prodigal son. They're they're well known. But misnamed because obviously, in each case, the real star is the person doing the searching. And they tell us wonderful things about that searching God. Uh, Jesus was speaking to a mixed audience of self righteous Pharisees and teachers of the law, and then the religious outcasts, the sinners, and the tax collectors. The religious elite have been muttering and complaining that this would-be wise man is hanging around with the lowest of the low. And Jesus' response in those three parables basically shows them that they really don't have the first clue about the character and nature of the God they claim to worship. Uh, The picture in Luke 15 is of an amazing, searching God, The religious leaders are right, he he hates evil. His wrath does burn against wickedness. But that doesn't stop him from searching out the weak and broken and the lost. So, as a shepherd, he's prepared to leave his flock behind and venture into danger, the wilderness, rejoicing after just bringing one lost sheep back to safety. As uh, the woman in the second parable, he's prepared to search ceaselessly until he finds something which is of great value to him. And beautifully we heard last week that as the father, he's prepared to abandon propriety and humble himself as he goes out to invite each of his lost sons back into loving relationship with him. They're, they're pictures of a God whose heart is to search out and rescue his lost children through costly, uh, Tim would even say, radical love. The, the shock to the righteous in his audience was that, that God would <coughs> even search out the sinners and tax collectors. Maybe more surprising to us now that we're so familiar with, with those stories is that he's a God who even reaches out to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the elder brothers in that story, although of course it's not clear how he eventually reacted. And of course what really should surprise us most is you know if we stop and reflect a little bit, this is a God who in his heart longs even to search us out lost and sinful children far from Israel. And sadly, we know that many, or maybe even most of Jesus' audience that day, didn't accept that message. Uh, they didn't respond to this picture of a God who, at his heart, longs and searches for his lost children. Many, in fact, set themselves up in direct opposition to him. They, they crucified his son. Jesus' message polarises humanity. Paul describes it as the stench of death to people who reject it, but the aroma of life to people who are being saved. So our question for the rest of this series is really, what does it look like to respond to this God of Luke 15? How can we be like the younger brother? How do we joyfully receive his grace? And that seems to be the thrust of the teaching in, in chapters 16 and 17. What will Jesus' disciples look like? How will they be different to the hardened hearts of Israel and its leaders? A word which we bandied around in our preacher's group was repristination, um, I I think Peter made it up. I wouldn't try it in Scrabble, but it it carries the idea of scraping away all the rubbish, all the accretions, the, the additions of rules and obstacles and objections which we build onto our faith to get back to that pristine, simple response of a lost child to God's grace. How do we respond to that searching heart of God? Uh, This morning, we'll look at the first of Jesus' message on that topic to his disciples. It's spelt out pretty clearly for us. No one can serve two masters. Jesus polarises his audience. To respond to this searching God, his disciples have to choose where they'll invest their loyalty, or their time, or their resources. So Luke 16 Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. He called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 3,000 litres of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 1,500. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? 30 tonnes of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill, make it twenty four. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. The people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. How does that story strike you initially? I think in some ways it's quite confusing, isn't it? Uh, several of the people I've spoken to have said they find it difficult, even uncomfortable. What's going on? The, the manager here is clearly dishonest. What he does is wrong. He defrauds his employer for personal gain. It is essentially theft. But then he's commended, first by his employer, and then by Jesus, who says, imitate this, learn from him. What do we make of that? I, is this an encouragement to defraud our bosses? Yeah. Uh, you know, where's God in the parable? How, do, how does this mesh then with later as instructions that we get to live such good lives that no one can make an honest complaint against the gospel? Let me suggest a couple of reasons why I think the story is confusing. Uh, the, the first is that most of us come to it with some assumptions. Uh, we've got past experience of parables and uh, here where we see a rich man with servants or a master or someone in charge, our immediate response is probably to start equating them with God. But that just doesn't work here. The rich man is emphatically not God. If anything, he represents the exact opposite. So, uh, despite our expectations, God's actually only loosely included in this parable. He's a bit parts. And when the manager cheats his master, it's not God that he's defrauding. It's someone else. The second assumption, maybe, is that we expect to learn certain things from a parable. If behaviour is bad or foolish, we expect to be told that behaviour is bad or foolish. If it's good and desirable, we expect that to be spelt out for us. But here, it's not immediately clear whether something's wicked or good. The rich man commends his servant. Even though surely his actions would have made them into implacable enemies... I think that's, that, that's not because he likes the guy. It's not because he owes him any favours. It's more commending through gritted teeth. Well done. You've pulled a good move. Watch your back. I'll get you back when I can. It's maybe the way you might congratulate someone you don't like when they've just trounced you at a game of squash. <laughs> and it, Again, Jesus here, he seems to tell his disciples to imitate what is clearly wicked behaviour. It's important to note then, the manager is not a Christian <laughs> disciple. Jesus describes him as a man of this world. And the point isn't that he's righteous, he's not. The point is that he thinks about the future and he prepares for it. He works out where his loyalties lie and he acts on them. And those are the lessons that we're to learn from him without imitating him too clearly. So, we don't have a clear picture of God or his kingdom. We don't have a good example of discipleship. Uh, What do we have? Well, uh, verse 13 says it for us. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Christ's disciples and his opponents will approach the world from completely different perspectives. Their loyalties are in utterly different places and they should act accordingly. One way round that's obvious, isn't it? To a Christian it's clear that the life of a non-believer should seem wrong. When we sit down and we think through where we find our value we find it in God. In his kingdom, in his grace. And by comparison worldly priorities seem Empty. Something that we try and fail to leave behind. But I think maybe we we forget that the reverse is true as well. To the world around us, Christians look like they're basing their lives on absurd misconceptions. I think C.S. Lewis said, uh, if we're wrong, we're more pitiful than anyone else. That might usually only come through in gentle mockery and confusion. But honestly, you don't have to look too far to find scorn and contempt and anger that Christianity inspires in some. Christianity is not normal life plus a little bit on top. It's a totally new set of priorities. You cannot serve two masters, says Jesus. Their positions, their priorities are diametrically opposed. You cannot believe Christ's message and respond to him, yet dabble in the world. You can't cling to your former master and just dip your toes into the gospel. It doesn't work. You have to choose. And so it is with our manager here. The accusation's been made that he's wasting his master's possessions. Whether or not that's true, he's going to be out of a job this is a culture, obviously, without a dole line or much by way of state provision. If he hasn't got grown-up kids already, he will have no one to provide for him. So, obviously, his immediate worry is, what do I do next? How do I keep bread on my table? You know, maybe it's uh, part pride and part realistic self-awareness. He, he realises he doesn't have many options. He, he's not cut out from manual labour. And the idea of begging, well, that would be too great a fall to contemplate doesn't even occur to him to look for another job as a manager. I think he's not going to have great references. He's got no hope. His former master will not sustain him and he can't provide for himself. But he hits on the solution. For a brief while, he's there in the rich man's household. But he decides that he doesn't owe him any loyalty. It's no longer important him to preserve his master's investments or to follow the old priorities those don't serve his interests anymore all that matters to him is to impress the new friends uh, to find someone who will look out for him so the obvious targets, the people he can contact, the people he can serve best are his master's debtors, he phones them up calls them into the office, serves them well, now maybe he can't cancel their bills completely, maybe that's not legally possible but he certainly knocks their interests down doesn't he I'd like someone to do this to my mortgage he he halves one bill knocks a fifth of the next six tons of wheat Um, Ken can probably tell us what that means in today's money I I don't know, I confess but it's safe to assume that if he's doing this across lots of accounts and not just these two examples he's storing up some serious favours that's not the point the key is the only way for him to impress his new friends is to utterly betray and shortchange his former master. He can't look to the future and serve his boss. Benefiting one has to mean hurting the other. Loving his current master means losing his future friends. Gaining future security means despising his master's investments. He can't do both. He has to choose... Um, perhaps you think it's a bizarre and far-fetched situation but I've heard very clear modern analogues our friends are friends that work in city firms and in the course of normal career progression without doing anything dishonest they've taken jobs with the current opposition the moment they hand their notice in they're told to pack their stuff and they're escorted from the premises and sent home on full pay for the duration of their contracts Why? Well, to stop them doing things like this. To stop them gathering information about their their current business plans so that they can curry favour with new bosses. The employers of this world are, are more shrewd even than the characters in this story. They think through where their loyalties lie and they act accordingly. That's the story then? What's Jesus saying to us? Well, straightforwardly, it's verse 13 again. You cannot serve two masters. You have to choose between God and money, or between God and wealth, the riches that the world has to offer. Jesus certainly extends the analogy to status when he applies it to the Pharisees. Uh, They seem preoccupied with that. In many ways, we're like the manager in the story. Our, our contract with the world is coming to an end. Obviously, there's the universal, slightly morbid sense of that. Yeah. Sooner or later, the world's not going to provide for you any longer. We will die. I suppose, if you're not a believer here this morning, you might well say, well, grow up, that's just life, it, it ends. Make the best of what you've got now. But by this stage in Luke's gospel, Jesus has already stated, way back in chapter nine, that he intends to die and rise again. He goes on later to invite his disciples into that life as well. And a key claim of Christianity is that there is this resurrection, that there's more to life than our three score years and ten. And we'd point to Jesus. And his death and resurrection is our guarantee of that. I I can't fault you if you're sceptical about that. But why not at least look over maybe the last few chapters of each gospel. Look at the evidence presented. Or chat with one of the Christians here today. Ask them why they're convinced that there's more to life than just this. Jesus says, look to the future. The world will fail you. Who will provide next? Even if you're not convinced by him, that's an important question. Of course, if you are a Christian here, then there's a a second way that we resemble the manager. He's accused of wasting his master's riches and to be a Christian is to start down that path. The Bible claims that if we uh, reject God, we end up completely enthralled by sin. That's the rich man in the parable. We're ensnared and tangled up under his rule, not pleasing to God in any way. We're his slaves. But when by grace God begins to break us out of that mould, we start to see the hollowness of, of the things which dragged us down. We start to serve different priorities. We become bad servants to the world, disobedient slaves. And so where Christians can't be persuaded back to normal, worldly priorities instead they get rejected they experience opposition and persecution, that might vary from petty mockery up to violence and hatred either way the rich man tells his servant give an account of yourself, you cannot be manager any longer so he shrewdly makes friends who will provide for him the wealth of this world will fail you it will reject you, it won't meet your needs or provide lasting satisfaction. How will you shrewdly gain sanctuary? Jesus says we no longer owe allegiance to our former masters, money or popularity or success or comfort. And we cannot love God without abandoning those priorities. In fact, we might even need to squander their wealth deliberately like this servant did in order to be faithful to our new purpose it's important to realise he's not just saying that worldly wealth is valueless compared to heavenly treasure that message does come through clearly in other parts of the New Testament but here he's saying that the value of worldly riches is that they can be spent now for heavenly gain so the, the question to take on isn't where's my security What's my treasure? Is it my income or my bank balance, my family or my clothing or my car, or is it Jesus? That's a great question. But what this parable is pointing us towards is how are my income and my bank balance and my home and my family and my car, my clothing and my friendships, my status and my time, how are these things going to be put to work to please a new master? I should be completely clear, of course. It is not the things that we'll do that earn us safety and relationship with God. In the parable of the lost sons, that was the stance of the older brother. It didn't gain him much. Now, it's God who will search us out. It's by his power, by his costly love, that anyone who trusts in Jesus will have their sins wiped away at the cross. But if we're going to receive that grace, surely it means living under a new set of priorities, not clinging on to our old master that we're being saved from. And also, uncomfortable though it can be, there are pretty clear indications that some Christians will have great rewards in heaven, while others will be saved like people pulled from a burning building. They've foolishly held on to the wrong things for as long as they can, and they end up with nothing more than the skin on their backs. Look at verses 10 to 12. From a worldly point of view, everything you have now is yours to use. Eat, drink, and be merry. But from God's perspective, we've been entrusted with a few small riches a few small talents which we can put to work for his kingdom. How will we use them? The potential rewards are great. There's the joy of encouraging and building up Christ's church. There's the joy of fellowship with them and with other Christians who who might have heard and responded to the gospel in part due to our efforts. The Apostle Paul describes the church as he plants as his crown of glory in heaven. Who knows what wonders and honours God has in store for his servants. Would it be better to hold on to the world as best we can, enjoy a a few years of whatever security we can buy, than enter heaven empty-handed? The only value that Jesus claims for a Christian's wealth is in working towards our new master's goals. So, We can't kid ourselves, can we? We can't just live nice, comfy, Western lives, providing for ourselves and incidentally worshipping God too. That doesn't fit into verse 13. Living for God and living for wealth and prosperity, they're completely incompatible. I know that when I try to do a bit of both, it's just unstable. I can't realistically offer Sundays to God and Saturdays to me. I can't offer time, but not money. Or vice versa. I can't offer my heart to God, but not my life. One of two things will happen. Either I'll I'll get better understanding of God's character so that other things pale beside him and fall into insignificance. Possibly more likely i resent the loss of my treasures that will seep in and colour my thinking against service and generosity. I wonder how many times have you found yourself resenting an obligation to church or to other Christians just because of the way that encroaches on your life instead of rejoicing at the, the service you share in. I know that I, I feel that Many times, usually about half an hour before youth group. You know. Like this servant, we, we, we've got two entirely contradictory sets of priorities to follow. That's what seems to be going on with the Pharisees. They, they scoff at Jesus. But we're told in verse 14, they love money. And Jesus says they love to justify themselves in other people's eyes. Verses 16 to 18, those, those may be just an example of that. He, he picks out the law and its teachings on adultery. They're fairly clear. But the Pharisees, of course, they've got their own traditions which allow them to divorce and remarry when they want to. They don't care so much about God's perspective as their own. And Their hearts are detestable to God. And in turn, they sneer back at Jesus' teachings. His audience was polarized. We cannot love the world and its wealth and God. So, before the end, let me just ask some of the difficult questions. This servant, he shortchanges his master to win new friends. Are you doing that to the world? If you stop and assess your possessions and your talents, what are they being used towards? Is it the priorities of our old master, worldliness, or the new, building God's kingdom, serving his church and reaching out to the lost? I've got to confess, the majority of my energies, they're they're essentially being used in ways that are are pretty indistinguishable from the way that a normal physics teacher would use them. It's not that there's something wrong with having a car or a flat or a a TV or an impending marriage, hooray. Yeah, that's all nice and good. That's great, I hope. Uh, But are those things just there to serve my current needs and desires? Or, like the accounts that this servant managed, can they be put to better use? One of the, the normal applications to draw out here is, is our attitude to money. Okay, is, our, is our wealth there for our benefit? Or do we put it to good use? What's the state of your giving like? Are we being trustworthy from God's point of view? Do we use the, the small amount that we've got? Well... Or are we we're clinging onto to it and, and depending on our wallets for life confidence? That's, that's fair enough, but I, I think the implications stretch much further than our money. I'm sure you will need to think it through for yourself. An example occurs to me. Uh, what about our homes and families? You know, it, it's great, isn't it, at the end of the day to be able to go home and change gears, maybe Not relax, perhaps, if you've got kids, but at least have the divide between work or public life and home life. It's a sort of sanctuary. A pleasant home and family is is a great thing, it's a blessing. Has it been entrusted to you for a purpose? Now, I've got my own flat and plenty of time. It's lovely for me, but do I put it to good use? Am I faithful with what I've been given? I know for my part, I've experienced huge blessings to other Christians, whether married or single, showing me hospitality, sharing their homes with me. I'm also aware that my tendency is to be much more withdrawn and inward looking, staying involved in church, but tending to separate my home life off from myself for my own benefit. I can imagine in a few years, as a family develops, that, that might become more pronounced. Partly that's down to my personality. Some people are more natural hosts. But I suspect that if I'm to be faithful with what I've been entrusted with, I need to look a bit different. That might mean working at hospitality and welcoming others. What about you? Have you been blessed and trusted with a treasure? How can you put it to use? It might just mean hosting your home group occasionally. It might mean inviting other Christians home and and fostering fellowship by sharing time together. It it might mean going further and, and regularly, deliberately showing hospitality to people that actually you barely know at all. But what better form of evangelism would there be than being welcomed into a Christian household, living out the faith, warts and all, you could ask uh, Richard and Catherine Weston about the opportunity to host international students for a meal, you know, the, the impact that that can have. What would it look like for you to be trustworthy in handling your home? Or what about your use of time and talents? Obviously, we've each only got finite energy. There are only so many hours in the day. The obligations of work and family and definitely rest do deserve priority. But at the same time, the harvest is plentiful, the work is a few. What would it look like for you to be trustworthy with the time and abilities you've been given? Obviously, just within church, there's great need for for workers in In junior churches, home group leaders, with the new evening service, with maintaining and improving the building. And who knows what opportunities there are outside of church to invest (coughs) our time and energy in the right places. Or do you say, in response to that or other challenges, I'm poor? literally or or metaphorically, I'm poor, I, I just don't have much to give. Jesus says, yeah, you're right. But whoever can be trusted with that little bit can also be trusted with much, much more. I'm not trying to put you on a guilt trip, I promise. The motivation in this story is much more positive than that. The servant's looking to future gain, Jesus is clear, there are great rewards to be had. Investing in God's kingdom might seem a drag, but that's only because it's the expectation of the world, our ex-master, that we should just work hard to carve out time for ourselves. On the other hand, you've got this searching God of Luke 15, and part of the prize which he grants his lost sheep, his lost sheep, when they receive his grace, is that he loves to equip them. He loves to send them out to search with him. He loves for them to join in rejoicing over those who are found. I think Jesus is telling his disciples that to respond to that searching God, to be like the younger son, to be welcomed back into relationship with the Father, means. Choosing him completely over money and wealth. Investing their efforts for God's purposes. Even when, from the world's point of view, that would seem like a foolish waste. So, what would it look like for you to be a trustworthy servant of God across all areas of your life? What are the things that you could be investing in his kingdom? How can your your different forms of wealth, however great or small, be used for his purposes? Bear in mind, that is their only real value. And what are the things which you're inclined to hold back? What would be asking too much? What won't you use up or relinquish? is it really better than this God of Luke 15? How can we be more like the younger son from chapter 15? How do we respond to a God who comes all the way to us and searches us out, invites us back to him? We choose him over everything else. We invest all our energies in him. If that seems like a high price, just remember, remind yourself of the rewards. The investment pays off with a chance to to join in God's work of searching for his lost sheep. It it yields the chance to to rejoice with him as the lost are brought back to his kingdom. It builds you into a church. Ephesians calls it the glory of God, a body of people with common purpose and common joy and of course then it, it yields the witches of heaven to come I, th- I think that's probably worthwhile it's better than your average eyes certainly um, we're going to sing All I Once Held Dear in a moment and then finish uh, let's sing that